because yeah. historically the octopus uh um are <laughs> <laughs> there's octopus. Uh, there's an octopus in history once. Hello and welcome. I'm Steve, and I'm Al, and I'm Brett, and I'm confused. And this is Fools with Tools, a podcast for the tooled up toothologist. Uh, so, gentlemen, how are we? What's everyone been up to? Al, you have a Scandinavian with you. I do. I've been eating mostly, <laughs> pretty much, pretty much twenty four hours a day, nonstop for the past three days. Perfect. <laughs> Just how we like to yep. do it. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yes, uh, I'll obviously let. Razzle Have you been eating me. brown cheese? No brown cheese. There was no oh. no delicious brown cheese gifts brought. There was well, unless chocolate's kind of a brown cheese, isn't it? It's brownish yeah, and sweet and a bit like cheese. Um, and there's yeah. milk in it. Yeah, but no, no, still no, half no, in there. no weird strawberry sauces or anything like that. Oh, <laughs> fish. Yeah. Um, yeah, Rasmus has been over um, since Friday. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and we've been heating things up, making things burn, uh, hitting things with hammers, and yeah. uh, just generally having some fun outside. Um, and I'll let Rasmus fill you in on what we did yesterday, but it segues nicely into our topic. Yeah, you um, no, made a mess, made a fire, made a mess. <laughs> Tried to make a couple of laminated knives and burned them. And then also didn't burn them anything at all because the fire pot clagged up with slag. <laughs> <laughs> so well, halfway there. We we bored the pots out on the on the forge, got a little bit more airflow. Yeah. Raised the temperature mm. up a little bit. It was nice. Yeah, no, it, it works way better now. The only problem currently, I think, is that the slag gets captured in the bottom. Ah. So it's a hassle to actually clean Classic. it out. Problem yeah. Yeah. catching but, the slags. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I got it going again today and heated things up and heat them and had some fun. Nice. Got dirty. Sweet. Good stuff. Cool. Uh, in which case, Brett, what about you? Uh, well, I have been mostly eating broccoli Ooh, nice. or rice. Yeah, greens. Um, so in the last week... Uh, I, I can legitimately confirm now, like, I have the keys. Yeah. The key to cabin. So now it is uh, a process of, you know, figuring out, getting it hooked up to power and all the things that we were discussing last week. Uh, I, I'm going to have to, uh, you know, build out a shop space or at least somewhere that I can work within for the time being as it's going to be a long project anyways like the whole uh not rebuild but just making the house livable getting it up to code all that stuff that we talked about last week it's it's gonna take a while um but i'm excited to get started uh, and the the workshop or the workspace is going to be great it's gonna be like the the first project to get everything started so uh Within the last few days, I've also been working on a, a very traditional piece of kit, which I know I'm going to use in the future, and it just kind of popped up into my, popped into my head that I do not have a shave horse, which is a very Ooh. traditional piece of kit. Um, but I am obviously, in typical fashion, approaching it from a very non-traditional <laughs> way. Uh, 
just because of the the shave horses that I've used in the past, there's always a little bit of a, a give and take between stability and like form over function, right? Like this thing was made with a log and made by a traditional woodworker with a draw knife, you know, and there's there's something very interesting about being able to, you know, carve up a bit of wood and make a shave horse out of just traditional wood joinery. Uh, but I am taking it upon myself to add steel and completely over-engineer the entire thing. Nice. Did you not make one so then, with Jim, or did I imagine that? Yeah, I was going to say, I'm sure you, you've made a couple before, at least. Uh, actually, um, Jim, the one that I used in all my videos, uh, Jim did on a CNC. Ah, right. And cut out a bunch of plywood and stacked it up, and it worked worked pretty well for, for what we needed. Um, but Tracy, the I've, I've talked about Tracy a handful yeah. of times, Bastion Head. Um, Tracy makes a more traditional style where it's all like traditional wood joinery that puts yeah, the whole yeah. thing together. And you can break it down just by taking the legs off and, and all that stuff. Um, again, because I've used a couple of different types of shave horses, I'm approaching this as like, this is mine. This is my approach to it, which... You'll see in the video. I hope to get the video out by the end of the week. Um, it's just, it's a completely I keep kind of giggling at myself and just being like, no one should ever build a shave horse like this, but also it's going to be the best shave horse. <laughs> <laughs> well, half the time yeah. that counts, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, it's the way that I, was, Jess says this sometimes, it's like, I did it the best way I knew how. So, like, this is what makes sense to be going Nice. Cool. Yes. Anywho, Steve, let's hear from Moonshine Metalworks. Uh, <laughs> yes. Um, I I've had a, a weirdly busy week, um, but I managed to get some free time to finish up the axe that I've been working on for two and a bit years now. Um, It'll be cold so, by now. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Black uh, yeah, it's very good, well done. Um, but yeah, uh, a fireman's axe that I made for my brother from a piece of leaf spring from his van. Um, mm, kind of van, uh, uh, VW Crafter, nice. thick leaf spring as well. Really oh. good. There's a bit um, of history. No, <laughs> um, yeah. Uh, oh, no yeah. But there's uh, there's a load of reasons about uh why i don't why i went for a fire axe and all of that as well um but i won't bore people with that because it's family stuff um but yeah uh did that and then jamie reader came down on friday uh came down to help me sort out and set up and do some fine tuning on the 3d printer uh and we did a little bit of that and a hell of a lot of talking bollocks um <laughs> But yeah, it was really good fun. Uh, it's always good to hang out with Jamie and um, and kind of it, it was a lot of just demystifying a lot of the settings on the uh, printer. So now it's kind of one of those where I actually feel able that I can go in and kind of work on it and you know, I can change settings myself without, um, without worrying that I'm going to break the machine or something. Um, so yeah, that was very good and worthwhile. Uh, and then when Jamie finally left, because you know he hung around for 
far too long. <laughs> um, <laughs> but uh, I then went over and saw Dandles um, and did some wood turning. Ooh, and yeah, I know. soft steel. But uh, but yeah, no, it, can we call it genuine... wood machining at least? <laughs> it was actually really good, um, really enjoyable. Uh, I mean, uh, those of you that got to go to the um, Yandel's uh, thing after Maker Central last year uh, will already know that Dandles is actually a very good teacher. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, yeah, it, it was good. It, we, we kind of like, he wanted to approach it in a non-traditional way. He didn't want to do any cliche uh, sort of, you know, the, the usual beginner projects. He was much more kind of, oh, yeah. Uh, well, he, he was much more like, let's just, you know, let's make some shapes. Let's see how you feel. Let's, yeah, if you've got any ideas, we can work on that. And then I picked, after a butt plug, the most common beginner's project, which is a honey dipper, um, just because I have someone that I want to give a honey dipper to. Um, but yeah, so I did that. Um, again, it was just, it was it was really cool working on a, a completely new machine, a completely different material, um, and working in it in a, working on it in a completely different way to everything that I've ever experienced. Um, but it was really interesting seeing how, um, like processes that I already do and processes that I'm already used to kind of can still apply to such a different medium and such a different technique. Um, so yeah, lots of good, fun learning things came out of that. Um, nice. yeah, yeah, it was good. And, uh, yeah, segue wonderfully <laughs> into, uh, Talking about what you guys or where you guys went uh, yesterday was it yesterday wasn't it yeah yesterday yeah so we um, Rasmus bless him despite his numerous visits to the UK has never been to a museum in England which shocking from yeah. England know that that isn't really missing out because all, <laughs> our, all our museums are free which means that they have no funding which means that they're pretty fucking terrible. Um, <laughs> But the ones that are not terrible are actually okay. And we went to the Royal Armouries Museum, which happens to be in Leeds. Um, that, was, that was glorious. So we, we, because we, we'd spent the day kind of hitting metal and um, kind of in a primitive fashion, yeah, for want of a better word. Um, <laughs> but it was good to go and see kind of how people had done it in the past and um, the different techniques and throughout the ages, even going from like sort of 4000 BC, like really early. Yeah, they had, they had, a hunting exhibition with everything from Neolithic yeah, till yeah. like the fancy gold inlaid and mother pearl hunting equipment of the Tsarina of Russia in <laughs> 18 something something. <laughs> yeah, it's fantastic. So just seeing like not just around the world, but like through time, how yeah. people had, had approached something that was pretty much like the the instigator of most technology throughout the ages, which is war. Um, yeah, but the amazing innovations and the amazing use of materials and techniques and seeing why someone would switch from one thing to another thing, you know, especially like through like Japanese armor, you'd go back and see things that to us might seem primitive, but actually they're really thought through in terms of materials and process and why they do it. Um, and then lots of lovely pattern welded uh, steel as well. Uh, no, no mention of the D word in the whole museum. But even, even that seeing the sort of, um, you know, thousands of years old pattern welded swords, just absolutely stunning. And having just experienced, you know, a couple of hours of trying to try to weld 
two different types of steel together. Um, <laughs> these intricate, ornate things which they were doing, you know, over much more primitive th- means than we were doing it with. Um, well, no. I don't know. I was going to say, yeah, you're Forge. <laughs> yeah, I was also thinking <laughs> the big difference between the setup you got and they had is that... Less chicken. Less chicken in the fire, but definitely. <laughs> and probably that they used charcoal and had a sort of better fire management. Mm. But apart from that, you know, just one lump of steel. We picked up a new anvil for you. Oh, this is true. Yeah, yeah. We went to the metal store. Yeah. Hunk of steel. We went to the metal store, which was nice. So we built a new anvil and anvil stand. Uh, nice. Aptly named George, which is just a, a puck hammered into a log. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it, uh, currently, it's the best anvil yeah. you've got. Sounds fantastic. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, it was. Just, it was just. Um, I've been a couple of times to the museum, but I, I just, I just love seeing kind of the effort that goes in. Um, but also the, the the changes throughout the years and changes with fashion, but also changes with circumstance or you know um, materials or trend or whatever that, that that comes along that kind of dictates how and why people make things um, and the, the processes involved as well and who makes them and you know from like um, long bows and who had to use them and who had to make them through like really specialist shit as well and like um, they even had sort of props there as well, some movie props. And just showing the kind of the different, you know, you might have like four different versions of one weapon for a for a movie. Yeah. So it'd be like the hero model that's up close, uh, the prop that the 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 actor will carry around, and then the stunt model that they'll throw, you know, yeah. and then the actual firing one that actually mm. is a real gun that fires blanks. And so you just to have one thing on in one shot might be like actually four or five different versions of the same thing, all made out of different shit, yeah. all doing different jobs. I just thought it was really, really fascinating. The yeah. really good thing about actually that corner of the exhibition was that they, to a large extent, put uh, sort of the original historical reference next to the fantasy one. Oh, that one. was super nice. Yeah, yeah. And it would say, say that things like, yeah, they clearly borrowed these elements, and we know they borrowed these elements from here and here. Yeah. And but then they had to do this kind of thing to make it fit on screen or to fit the character or yeah. the narrative and all that. So here's, you know, like here's, here's Sting, uh, the, the sword from, from The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings, and then here's a beautiful bronze teardrop sword next to it that's like, you know, 1,500 years old yeah. and just, just seen like pretty much like for like exactly the same pattern sword. It's fantastic. Nice. Yeah, that's awesome. I know... Uh... Funny enough, you saying about like having different versions of uh, swords and things. I know um, when they were doing the the Witcher um, series, uh, a lot of the time, for especially for shots where they're actually slicing into people, they use like a half length sword and they just put put the rest in with CGI so that yeah, they don't yeah, actually nice. hit into people. <laughs> oh, cool. Yeah, it's yeah. like the classic like uh, arrow through your head gag, but like yeah. that bit real, that bit CGI. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's exactly what I had in mind. But... <laughs> no, but I, I think... found it interesting. Go ahead. No, go on, Brett. You found it interesting. Oh, I found so many things interesting. Uh, all of history, so interesting. Um, do they have an Ulfbert Ulfbert sword there? Did you see one? Uh, not by that name, no. They had a couple of Viking Age sword with uh, inscription uh, inlaid steel into the pattern, as of a, uh, sort of a maker's mark kind of thing. In the oh, same wow. used in the original Ulfbert, where it's ba- basically 
uh, sorry, so they sort of chisel at the groove and they forge weld in a different kind of steel. Like yeah. metal marquetry. Yeah, yeah. pretty much. So yeah. just about yeah. actually having weak points in the steel ah, okay. apart from sort of the forge welding which in theory is perfect right <laughs> yeah, but I, I find it so interesting when uh i watch a lot of these old videos on youtube or, or historical videos on youtube where they're researching weaponry or armor making um how they they talk about the different uh types of steels that were used or the different processes that were used and you know, it's it's pretty typical that they're like, we don't even really know how they did this. This just seems like technologically too advanced, or, or you know, stuff like the pyramids. We're like, we we don't know how they did it. Like, <laughs> it must have been the aliens, you know. Um, Rasmus, you might have a little bit more experience in this, or maybe even Steve, just with the more traditional blacksmithing work that you do. But um, how often are you presented with a challenge? That, that there's either no documentation on or or like very little research done on how these processes were done like you ever run into issues where you you go oh i want to make this or somebody wants to commission me to make this and i have no idea how they did it i mean we obviously uh i've spoken before about the fact that we did the uh the t-axis for the um uh sutton who uh recreation oh, yeah yeah, yeah. Um, so that was a similar sort of thing. I mean, in 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 a way, yes, it was. There's no documentation on it, but just by looking at the actual um, at the uh, the the original products, you can kind of you, you know you can see where there was a forge weld. You can see where you know this was welded onto that bit, and it was made. You know, the whole thing was made in four different pieces or whatever. Um, and so th there's there's quite a lot of uh, of backwards engineering but i think a lot of that just comes from having an understanding of the different processes and then being able to backwards engineer that and and there's a lot of stuff that we did that they may have done in a different way but ended up with the same end result hmm. um so it's i think that's that's one of the things is a lot of people be like oh we don't know how they did it there's no records it's like well we don't know exactly how they did it but we have a pretty good idea um, and I think that's something that gets overlooked a lot is the fact that just because we don't know the, you know, because there, there wasn't a written documentation about how a certain thing was done, people kind of like to make out like, oh, it's this mysterious lost art. And, you know, like you say, oh, it's aliens or whatever. No, it's, it's a simple process. It's just there's multiple ways of doing it. And we're not quite sure which one they would have chosen. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah, it, it, it sort of inside of blacksmithing i don't think the craft itself has changed at all for the last three four thousand years the yeah. only thing that have changed is the accessibility of raw materials and the quality of raw materials and then the tools used to manipulate it but all the basic techniques are the same today as it was back then it's just now we have a lot more material and less time to do sort of the same job and yeah. that dictates a lot of the techniques used so when we are replicating certain things, sort of the budget of the client dictates how many of the traditional techniques we can use. Yeah, like yeah. Seeing, seeing all the, the, the suits of armor hung up in, in, in the museum, like obviously not towards the end when it was like kind of army issue stuff, but the kind of yeah. royal suits of armor is like, yeah, this probably cost the same as a town. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. They, yeah. Actually, they actually had uh, the pricing of things listed. Oh, did they? Yeah, but yeah. Um, they had one record of one lord who bought himself a piece of armor 
and his squire and his brother or nephew a piece of armor and it was the price of it and it was uh like 300 day wages for a normal worker or something for one piece yeah. of armor yeah yeah so it's mad. Yeah, <laughs> nearly a year's salary for any common man to one piece yeah. of armor <laughs> But I mean, I, I think one of the other things that uh, that you got to remember is when you're talking about stuff like this, like um, like you guys doing the trying to do a, a laminate blade um, this weekend. Like a lot of the people that were doing it back then, that's something that they would have done day in day out. They yeah, you know yeah. they would have had a huge amount of experience with it before um, before making these things. So you know that just the the level of skill and technique. Like we spend a lot of time in our workshop. Um, we'll make a couple of things and then, you know, we might spend a day doing the handle work. We might spend a day doing this or, you know, we might go off and, and teach for a day or we go off and do something else. Back then, those guys wouldn't have done that. I mean, that's that's why the that's why you get like the blacksmith knife with the forged handle is because that would have been done all in-house. You know, they they wouldn't have handed it off to another um, person to any work. Like a, a chef's knife, how we think of it, they wouldn't ever have spent the the extra day day and a half of doing the wooden handle they'd have just handed that off to someone else and let them do it and i think uh Ilya is a great example of someone that's actually able to pick up on all of the techniques and use those techniques um but even when you watch um like the the older man at arms videos a lot of the stuff that's being done they they hand it around between the team there's no one person that does mm. everything um whereas especially within the maker community nowadays, people kind of expect to do every single stage of a project rather than handing it off partway through. I can, I can come with one bit of information to that. Uh, in Norway, prior to the Industrial Revolution, the guild had, I believe, 130 different specializations of blacksmithing registered. Yeah. And now that's defined to machinist, welder, and monkey with a hammer. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, it, and and that's the thing is you, you know you, even now we you have um, you have uh, blacksmith, bladesmith, um, knife maker, and yeah, there, there's even between that there, there's not much uh, to common people. There's there's not much in the way of definition between them, um, and that's why you know, if if I say to someone oh, I'm a blacksmith, then the first question they normally ask is either do you make swords or do you shoe horses? And it's like, well, no, because one of them's a bladesmith and the other one's a farrier. And, <laughs> yep. and yeah, if you were to then go into the different subcategories of, of blacksmiths, and that's why these guys were so skilled at what they did, because that's what they did all day. It's like the nail makers. I mean, traditional nail makers would have been expected to make like a few hundred nails a day. Um, I think the most that we've done in the workshop is is uh about 200 in a day um and that's with alex going you know full hammer and tongs to use a appropriate <laughs> phrase but but you know that like that's that that's him really going some whereas those guys would have done it day in day out without even breaking a sweat because it's just what they did they became human machines sort of thing whereas now we we don't do that we want to have our fingers in many different pies and try all the different techniques and and yeah we, we want to put a pretty handle and bit of wood on it and then we want to make a leather sheath because you know that then that's the complete thing and we've done everything in that project um whereas 
back in the day, that just wouldn't have been something that was done. I mean, the, mm-hmm. the, the unfortunate thing is like, there's not, there's not a place in society for that anymore because everything's been commoditized to the point where you can't specialize that nichely no. because the, well, yeah, to your point, the industrial revolution didn't help, but the fact yeah. that, you know, you, you almost have to multitask. You have to be able to be a jack of all trades for one extent in order yeah. to, if, you, if that's what you want to do, you want to keep that alive. You yeah. couldn't be a specialist nail maker. That's <laughs> like just waiting for that one big job. I make rivets. I'm just, you know, I'm, I'm waiting for that next Titanic to come along. Yeah. Like you're not going to get professional strikers now because yeah. we have powerhouse. Well, yeah. Presses, they're called the I don't need it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, but yeah, they're like, there's, there's so many things like that that just, they aren't needed. So that, you know, that, that person that was the master Smith that was basically just telling everyone else what to do is now the person that actually has to do all of that because there's just not the demand for those individual um, little items. And that's why, you know, the the things that they would have made in half an hour take us a bit longer because we've got to make them to a certain level and in quality to be able to get the the money for them. Yeah. But I mean, same in any any industry, any kind of craft where once upon a time you would have had that specialism or you'd have the guy, Mm. the, the guy to come in and do that one thing like you saying, pass it around, and then you yeah. know, it doesn't matter what it is. Um, even in like you know my industry, in the design industry, for until not long ago, you would have the guy to do the typography, you'd have the guy yeah. to do the illustration, you'd have the get. You know, it's just there isn't the scope for that anymore. You have to you have to learn everything yeah. just to kind of stay afloat, because otherwise, the next person coming along will 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 learn two skills and then you yeah. float. Yeah, I mean that happens a lot in IT as well. Like there's a lot of uh, when you look at um, like job listings online for for any job in IT now, you're expected to know yeah. C++, Python, Java, Groovy, and a load <laughs> of other obscure programs, and be able to program in BASIC, and do support, and be on call, and do all this, and do all of that, plus be a front-end developer as well as doing the back-end, plus be able to know what the architecture is doing at all times. And it's just Keep like, going, Steve. Keep it's going. Like, it's like how 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 the fuck you do you expect people to do all of this? And you know, also they, you're supposed to have 15 years of experience. Yeah, and yeah. don't be horrible as well. Be nice while you do it. Yeah. Don't be like a grumpy <laughs> IT person. Be like a nice IT person. Yeah, be be like Phil. Back well, up. I always got it, that. Just that takes me into a different topic within this topic, <laughs> where it, generationally. Just throughout time, you know, I, I feel like I get hung up on the idea that somebody that may know the craft, you know, better than you or, or may have been doing it longer, um, when you're maybe trying to follow in their footsteps or at least learn from them, like you, you have to learn everything that it took them 30 years to learn, right? Or 20 years to learn. So you're already getting set up to uh, achieve a higher level of success in a shorter period of time. Or, or have more knowledge in a shorter period of time than it took them. And, you know, within the last hundred years, you can look at it and go, oh my God, you know, like people, the cars, and now we have the internet, and like Steve's list of things that he just rattled off would have been complete nonsense to somebody 50 years ago. You know, what the hell is Python? It's a snake in the jungle. Um, but looking back hundreds of years and, and, 
this idea that goes through my head is like, oh my god, what if, what if you were able to to drop an iPhone in the middle of, you know, ancient Rome? <laughs> like, would it just be destroyed immediately by somebody of being like wizard magic? You know, like what is this evil piece of material that we don't even know existed versus describing the intro to 2001 <laughs> yeah kind of yeah exactly so so i'm i know i'm kind of rambling but it always fascinates me to think of what if you were able to put i i know we keep talking about blacksmiths but it's just easier since there's so many of them here um if steve or rasmus was able to go back 1500 years and show up with the knowledge that you have, which is not, you know, you guys aren't like master level blacksmith, 60 year old, been doing this all my life. But do you think your skills would be applicable, applicable or more applicable to those people because you'd be able to present them with like new techniques? I know you said earlier that the, the craft hasn't necessarily changed, but do you see... Do you see going back in time or back in history is like, oh, but that could be done so much better because I these things is that tender on equipment and material, like you said? That's interesting I, question. I, yeah. I I don't think we would be able to do anything except just show them things that they understand. Yeah. 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 If that but, makes but, sense. Yeah. There, there would be a lot of stuff that we already do that they already know. And because of the difference in materials um that's probably where the the greatest le level of dis difficulty would come like we i i mean i know i've worked with with raw iron a little bit but not a huge amount but it's a very different uh beast to work with than than a chunk of mild steel or a chunk of bright steel or or high carbon or whatever um i think uh there's there's certain things that are transferable but then the interesting thing is back then it was like I, we've talked about this a, a bunch of times, but the fact that there's this weird kind of globalization of blacksmithing now where we all kind of uh, borrow from each other's um, skills and techniques. Whereas, you know, back a few hundred years ago, it would have been, you know, the, the, the Swedes would have had a very, very specific way of striking, you know, the, um, the English would have had a very, very specific rhythm and would have done things in a very particular way. Whereas now we're far more open to trying different, uh, different styles and techniques and finding what suits us, um, suits us better. Uh, but I think the more interesting thing is the fact that if you were to bring a blacksmith from two, three, four, five, eight hundred years ago into a modern workshop, it would take them probably a week to acclimatize to the power hammer and the press. And, you know, maybe the, the fact that we're using uh, a gas forge, if, if you're using a gas forge rather than a solid fuel, and that would be it. They would just be away then. They'd be carrying on making fine. Um, and I don't know how many other crafts um, have stayed that, that, that similar to how they were that long ago. Yeah, see, that's that's the part that intrigues me so much about, you know, blacksmithing specifically. But I'm going to direct this towards Al by saying, as a designer, you know, branding, graphics, all all the everything that you do, which I don't even know the the plethora of things that you probably have on your rap sheet. But 
imagine going back to the you know, the 1600 or something like that. You know, you see the old taverns in, in video games or movies or something like that where it just has like uh, like your your photo behind you that no one can see, the dog and castle, mm-hmm. right? If you were a designer nowadays with your capabilities, could you go back in time and then go, hmm, the branding of your inn or the sign in front of your inn really isn't pulling in the street traffic the way that it needs to. I'm going to rebrand it. <laughs> <laughs> does that even seem like a, 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 obviously it's a hypothetical situation but does it even seem like you would add anything to the situation or is it just the demand nowadays of a you know ridiculous marketing wing yeah I mean branding only works now because of branding yeah so that's the, that's the only reason branding works is because people are aware of brands if you go back to a point where people didn't know there was such a thing the concept would not really make sense you know you you would have coats of arms and you'd have things to identify where things came from and you'll have hallmarks as a sign of quality you know which is you know and and the branding of cattle and meat was the uh, an indication of a possession who it belonged to but b also uh, also a sign of quality you know his 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 sheep are worth more and his his cattle are worth more so you look out for that brand um but in terms of like commercial brands um yeah i i i don't think it would have been as relevant back then i think people would have gone on you know spanish steel is the best steel yeah but i think i think what i think what steve was saying earlier about that globalization um prior to that and one of the interesting things in, in the museum was seeing the convergence of everything so at points where there was no contact between other sides of the planet and everybody was doing their own thing. Everyone was doing their own approach to metallurgy. Everyone was doing their own approach to siege warfare and armor. And, you know, going to Japan from like 1600 to the, to the mid 19th century, they were just completely cut cut off from the rest of the world, like religiously, like they they weren't even allowed to go anywhere near Japan. So they were just totally isolated from any influence. Um, But then, suddenly turn of the century everything homogenizes and everything comes to one basically one style like if i do design now i don't do english design i do design that's influenced by germany and by you know the americas and by latin design and by you know asian influence and everything in in between so what i do miss that kind of that recognition of some you know that 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 came from that village and i can recognize that Oh, they're, they're the wheels that they design up the road because I know that that's the style of wheel that they design up the road as opposed to the ones in the south of the country where they have a slightly different style. And I and I miss that, that kind of um, appreciation and understanding of where things came from just by looking at them. Yeah. But isn't, isn't a lot of that also determined by a sort of a personal brand has I think always existed through the ages. Yeah. In the sense that yes, this specific craftsman made the best kind of item around. Yeah. And the best kind of steel came from this mill down there. Yeah. yeah. That kind of thing. So I think the personal brand has persisted and will continue to last. The whole corporate thing is basically replacing a personal brand with <laughs> lies. Because you, well, I mean, this is the point. So the, the point of a brand is it is a personality. So it should be about a person and their values and, and their kind of promise. It's like a promise, isn't it? Yeah. Like I, I stamp my mark into this, my maker's mark, because 
you know that this is the quality you'll get from me, be it consistently yeah. mm -hmm. or stylistically. You know, I am buying into you. I'm buying you. I'm not just buying the raw materials and the the hours that have come in. I'm buying a Erasmus knife. Yeah, yeah. buying the reputation and the brand yeah. and all the years, hopefully the years of previous experience yeah. of making things better. And that's sort of what we saw with the uh, suits of armor at the Royal Armories was that, yeah, there was like, I think it was a total of three different guild marks. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, two German ones and uh, one other, I can't remember where it was. Nuremberg was the German one and another one there. And that's like, yeah, if you had the suit of armor from there, you had really good life insurance. And <laughs> 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 yes. I think that, that's one of the things, though, is, is you've got, um, like Rasmus said, like you, you have those those individual brands, which still exist uh, to an extent. I mean, it, obviously within the, the community, everyone's got their own individual brand and everything. But I think one of the things that if you if you look back and you look at those people that you know you knew that if you go on to the next village then and i'm going to stick with the blacksmithing theme because it's the <laughs> easiest one for me to come up with analogies for um but you know you you know you go to the the next the uh, blacksmith in the next village and you say right well actually i know his knives are going to last 10 times longer than the guy in my village yeah generally the reason is because they they've pro both probably been taught by exactly the same um master smith um it's just the fact that when they did their journeymanship you know he went that one went off and and found you know a different technique or a different style or a different source for better quality high carbon or whatever because you know the generally the people that um that are innovating and that are doing things better than their peers are because you know they have gone out and they have experienced a little bit more they've seen a little bit more they've been willing to take on those ideas very very little uh innovation is done in isolation it's it's by taking other people's ideas and techniques and and making them uh or using them to to expand your own um plethora of techniques and i think that's one of the things that globalization has done now is the fact that it's a phrase that we've used many times like that that rising tide raises all ships it's the fact that now everybody has to be so much better at pretty much everything yeah. because there's so many other people that you know they're, they're not just sitting alone in their shed and you know learning off of a single person they're going out and they're they're watching youtube videos they're they're going and taking classes with you know a different uh blacksmith every every other week or whatever like there's there's so much more information available from so many other sources that you know, you're you're able to fact check. You're not you you don't have to just rely on that that one source of information. You know, if 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 your master smith says, "Oh well, whenever you're uh, welding something, it, or sorry, whenever you're forging something, it needs to get to you know a white hot sparkling heat," and then you find that actually fifteen other blacksmiths all say, uh, "No, you 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 can forge it like yellow to red," then you go, "Oh, okay. Well, I'm, I'm going to try that now." Like it's. It's that um, that ability to be able to expand your horizons, as it were. But I, I've I never really thought about it this way until now. But I think I've always seen history go hand in hand with geography. Yeah, and I never really made that kind of connection. I never think of history as like me in this one place and what was happening in this one place a thousand years ago. It's a bit like in Red Dwarf, where they're like three million years from home and they get a time machine. Yeah, and Lister's like, "Oh, this is fantastic! We can go home." And they turn it on, and they go back in time three million years, and they're still three, they're still three million yeah. years. Home. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> they're just three million years away from home three million years ago. Yeah, <laughs> it makes no difference. So I think I think 
that 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 connection between the two is really interesting. So that the the history is about sort of the spread of time over areas as well, and over peoples and over connections, and those connections made over time and stuff. So it isn't just one person doing one thing the same way in one place, because like the the bronze salesman would never have come knocking on your door yeah. and gone, "Do you want to buy some bronze? You know, <laughs> do you want to start on this path? You know, it requires." that geography in order to, for, for change to happen. Yeah, I read a while back about why, well, sort of the human species started in Africa, but Africa has never been the most developed part of the world, not since fall of old Egypt, hmm. basically. And the part of the reason for that is the flow of information inside of Africa as a continent is so difficult. They don't have these slow going rivers that we have in Europe and Asia. They have turrets and <laughs> falls and <laughs> mountains and ravines going everywhere Dramatic and deep, and deep nature, jungles yeah. so yeah. moving about for ancient man was really hard so when technology developed it sort of took way longer for it to uh, permeate throughout africa while as soon as it reached the mediterranean there was sea and flatlands yeah. <laughs> relatively yeah. speaking uh, but yeah <laughs> so, so suddenly people could trade and exchange knowledge so much faster yeah well, it's it's still path of least resistance, whether or not yeah. you're talking yeah. about work or, or actually producing something. But the exchange of information and technology is also going to follow the path of least resistance, right? If it's easier to transport 10,000 miles across flat, open land that's very easy to traverse versus where you live and you crazy fjords and whatnots. Um, Hey, I, I live in the be... part of Norway. I only got 100 meters down in 10 minutes. To go to <laughs> Fair enough. But just watching you walk up the street on the ice with, you know, modern technology on your on your feet. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. I imagine it would be quite difficult to, you know, just run up the hill to the local guy that's going to give you the new information thing you need. I, I, um, actually, I'll see if I can get some good pictures of some really old ice shoes from my area and i can post a picture when i get back home again because there actually ah, is people who made like medieval climbing shoes on for ice to quote blade some motherfuckers always trying to ice skate uphill <laughs> <laughs> oh my god uh, thank you so much for that now yeah, no i you know with with my young years i, I spent a lot of time researching the medieval warfare and, and weaponry, weaponry and armory and all, all of these things. Um, and like you said, Al, it's, it's not just looking at uh, European um, timeframes, right? It's like looking at the other parts of the world that were maybe a little bit secluded or didn't share the information. Um, it, that is, it's, it's insane to look at two people that were doing either the exact same thing thousands and thousands of miles apart without knowing any better or without knowing each other or on the flip side of that the people that were thousands of miles away from each other that thought of completely different approach because it was unique to their environment um and necessity being the mother of all invention you know it's like what what about the guy that was in the desert and and traversing the desert what did his clothing or armor or weaponry look like versus the person that was in the cold north 
You know, it, I think Game of Thrones is a really fun way of looking at everything because they were, you know, relatively historically accurate. If you look at the, um, what's the actor's name that played the Mandalorian? What's what's his name? Shit, he was the Viper. You know that yeah. went up against the mountain. Yes. Anyway, yes, their entire culture is all this lightweight, you know, lots of movement, being able to be agile. So their weaponry, he has a spear that he fights with versus like a broadsword, you know. So instead of this heavy, clunky armor that you're not really meant to move around a ton in it, um, but it, it holds up really well. It's very durable. So it's big, heavy swings versus the insanely agile Viper guy that's holding a spear that can hit you from 10 feet away. And also dodge your attacks and things like that. So even though those people met on the same battlefield in that fantasy world that was created, it's all taking place in the same time frame, right? But when they first show up, it's like you got to imagine these people were like, "Why? Why aren't they wearing armor? <laughs> what? I'm gonna kill them in one shot." And you're like, "Oh, you don't know. You don't know that they have been their entire culture of war has centered around being agile and and escaping." being faster than you well like the celts like they just fought naked because like yeah. they, they, it was all about the attack so they didn't even understand the concept of armor because that would be defensive yeah and the whole yeah. the whole reason they were so effective is because they just rushed on the attack yeah well and, yeah yes, the berserker... you killed but if you've if you've already killed them it doesn't matter yeah, <laughs> yeah the the berserker armor the berserker armor in the lord of the rings uh fight at helm's deep yeah, uh, I remember watching Weta's behind the scenes thing, and the armor was like, "Oh, when we were thinking about all of the different armor types for the different types of fighters, the Berserker is just going full on. So if you look yeah. at the movie, all of his armor is forward facing. Yeah, yeah. So like he's just meant to come at you, and if you look, his back is not covered at all because <laughs> there was no expectation to ever be able to get behind him. He was just full force." And so the ground troops are fully armored. You know, they move a little bit slower. I I think stuff like that is so brilliant. Just like the <laughs> detail. And well, even that, even that why mindset. would you need armor on your back? I'm never. <laughs> no one's gonna get behind me. But that mindset is like you don't think about it until like it's obvious. But there, there was like there's a couple of things in the museum that just like really struck me as just completely different mindsets. So there was a there's a beautiful diorama of um, the Battle of Agincourt. Uh, sorry, Red. Um, and yeah. it, like. Basically, it, it panned out the battle throughout the day, like literally from like times throughout the day from from records, and it, it it went through the different generals and the armies and kind of talked about what happened throughout the day and different swathes in the battle and stuff like that. And then it got to like sort of four in the afternoon, and and something like the Duke of York he'd been killed on the battlefield uh, in the morning, and by the afternoon it was it was like um, they boiled his body up so they could take his bones home. Yeah. And it's like he was alive in the morning, and by the afternoon he'd been boiled to get all the meat <laughs> off his bones, so it would be easy to take the bones home. <laughs> and it's just that, like, that that sort of pragmatism and just like ultimate wow. like kind of like detaching the the living person from just the the, the sort yeah. of practicalities of war, yeah. and, and and the practicalities of logistics of shipping. <laughs> it's just like fucking hell. Like he was he was alive like. Uh, have, you seen, have you seen the general? Uh, I've not seen him since this morning. No, he's he's broth now. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> waste not, want not, and all that. But uh, but like speaking of the 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 battle, I mean, Joe goes on about the Battle of Agincourt all the time. He <laughs> is a wealth of knowledge for stuff like that. 
but um but like the, the fact that our our archers were they were all pantless um that, well they they all had dysentery so they weren't wearing trousers because they were just constantly shitting themselves so there was no point even putting trousers on just they'd stand there shoot shit shoot shit shoot shit <laughs> and that was it and then um because they they also carry um like archers swords which are small little like needle-like swords because they weren't wearing armor so they'd because we i they worked out like how many arrows we were firing a minute plus how many arrows we actually took over there and realized that actually they would have had to have gone out into the battlefield to collect up arrows to bring them back so what they would have done is they'd have had teams of two or three people they'd have gone out one person would have just been gathering all the um arrows and the other guys would have basically just been protecting him um but they had these little short sharp uh swords because if they saw a knight they just go up and just gank him yeah. in the side because like brett said they were light and not wearing any armor so they could just nimbly dodge around him and then just <laughs> stab him between the uh the plates in the armor and um and that's one of the reasons why that battle went the way it did because they were just like yeah gank great <laughs> This conversation is starting to remind me more and more of the good old days of World of Warcraft, where we would raid yeah. the battlefield, <laughs> take down Illidan, not with a paladin tank, but yeah. with a no-hit rogue tank. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And then being, whoo, whoa, whoom, yeah. <laughs> dancing around the meanest motherfucker ever inside of Black Temple. Yeah, yeah that's, that's a way of doing it. I'm so glad it's not just my head that went there. <laughs> <laughs> Well, it's always fascinating to look back at different cultures and their approaches to uh, warfare. Man, we're just like talking about people fighting each other now. This is great. <laughs> um, technology, Brad. <laughs> right. But, but Rasmus, I mean, the amount of video games that I played where you, enough research has been done, or you can you can understand the details maybe as you're playing it. Where uh, I think it was a Final Fantasy game where like you could you could get your character out in so many evade or dodge items or stuff like that, that you could fight the strongest monsters in the game with effectively no armor because your stats were so crazy that like you just never get hit. And so the expectation that humans back in the day were just like, right, if you're uh, naked, you just won't get hit. You just got to be really fast. <laughs> Greasy. Greased up. <laughs> Greased up. Greased up. <laughs> Never gonna catch me. No, but if you look at how the Japanese were fighting, having their duels, uh, the samurai specifically, yeah. they they didn't have long drawn out duels. They had a three at at tops a three move yeah, duel, yeah, yeah. where yeah. they were drawing, slicing, blocking, and one of one of you are dead. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. Because, yeah they, they have developed a style of not getting hit. Instead of taking a beating, yeah, and mm -hmm. also they had the insanely sharp swords, which didn't last, stay sharp all that long. So it was like, yeah, couple of blocks, and then your blade is ruined. Yeah, <laughs> but uh, but yeah, I mean, it, it it is. It's one of those things where you you can look back and you can see all these different um, uh, different ways in which we've developed. I mean, granted, we're mostly talking about weapons and swords at the moment, but. But just technology as a whole. But then there's certain things that it, it's not just a case of if it ain't broke, don't fix it. Where people have tried to improve upon it, 
and and they just haven't i mean like like the the forge welding side of things and things like that but but also where like um like uh i could be completely wrong on this and there's probably a load of woodworkers that are going to kick off if, about it but like a, a a simple box joint or like a, a dovetail joint in fact the, going back to the japanese um again like they're they're um they're no glue carpentry joints where it's all like millimeter perfect and it's just it's just a friction fit and you know that that joint is is perfectly secure it allows for wood movement it's you know it's going to last as long as the actual wood itself lasts and yeah there's 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 no real way we can improve on that and you know you if you if you apply wood that uh, if you apply wood if you apply glue then that stops it allowing for the movement if you know if you apply a six inch screw that's again gonna hold it and you know it, it's those things that that do a job well enough that actually there's there's no need for improvement well i heard that if you just pour three inches of epoxy resin on top of your wood that it's like good forever <laughs> <laughs> well, right? Right? Yeah, when if I set fire to it it'll last even longer yeah exactly there you go which I is like brilliant firing it <laughs> No, I, so just taking it away from like weaponry specifically, since we've been talking about it so much, it, going through art history school, I, I loved learning how the process of uh, creating, you know, canvases or, or paintable surfaces back in the day. Um, but based on this conversation, it's making me think about tanners or, or leather workers, where if you had a, a person that was a tanner or ran a tannery how many different products were they creating because if if you were doing things like traditional skins or like effectively leather canvases uh people were also using skins and leathers for a multitude of other uh applications like armor and everything like that so like how do you if you were a tanner back in the day, did you have a, a wider offering than somebody like what this is going back to what you were talking about earlier, Steve, where you had one specialist uh, for all of the blacksmithing techniques. But I feel like leather is something that has had like yeah. a million different applications from armor yeah. to. I, th I think you'd still have the ta the tanner would still just be producing, you know, they'd be, be producing different grades of, of leather like they, they do now, but you'd have more, again, the same as, as you would with a blacksmith. You'd have more, um, you'd have more leather workers that had specialization rather than it being the tanner itself, because it's, you know, they're still just for all intents and purposes, they're just producing a different grade of, of leather. It's the actual leather workers that, that would then go into specializations. Mm, so fair. like you, like you have, um, like 130 different types of blacksmiths you'd have had 130 different types of leather worker whereas now you've got you know a handful and it's like it's it's more of a case of like whether they specialize in like armor reproduction or whether they specialize in just uh stitching or whether they specialize in carving sort of thing and that's that's more of it but the, the, ta the tanner would... is the tanner not like the person just curing the skins right yeah, I, I think but, I'm using. Yeah, I think I'm that would have been all sorts of stuff as well. It would have been pelts and like other like we we just assume when people say leather now they mean cow. 
Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. Like, like the beaver trade and stuff and all the kind of throughout the ages, the different... Yeah. I'm, I'm half tempted to of... think that they would have a tannery for each, sort of each specific animal, yeah, nearly, yeah, yeah. or one for game or something. Well, it would be, I'm assuming, next door to the slaughterhouse. <laughs> yeah, I mean, a, a lot of a lot of the skins, uh, like deer skin and stuff like that, would have just been done uh, by the person shooting it. Like a lot of people would have been able to tan their own leather. It's yeah. it, like we have those specialist skills now, where everyone diversifies and, and does. You know, everyone can do a little bit of computer work. Everyone can do a little bit of this and a little bit of that. Think, back back then, they would they would have been chewing, able to chewing do... on a deer skin, pissing yeah. on it every sort of half an hour. It's like it's like installing yeah. with Vista. Yeah, but that, that's the thing is, is you know, back then everyone would have been able to do a little bit of tanning, a little bit of foraging, a little bit of this, that, and the other. But, but I think um, that's the thing. It, 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 like industries like uh, leather making, whereas now it's you know it's a kind of that industry is supported and supports to an extent um, farming. Back in the day, it would have had far more uh, businesses involved with it. Um, you know, even down to the fact that it would, there would have been a person that would have gone around the local village collecting piss. <laughs> like that—that uh, that was someone's job. Is in that's where the the um, the phrase "you haven't got a pot to piss in" comes from. Is the fact that people used to piss in a pot so that they could sell it to the local tannery for a few pence. Because um, back then, even a bit of piss was spiffing. Have you got an order? Yeah, it's Raz, like raspberries. Raspberry. Uh, which means Rasmus is first. Yes. And I probably. You never sh- said, okay, cool. You've just said it. Okay. <laughs> so I, I probably should have been spiffing uh, Michael Turner Studios, who does amazing stainless steel sculptures of animals especially a gorilla on a motorbike, which is fantastic. <laughs> but because we talk about history, I want to spiff John Green and basically everything he's done and is doing. That's the guy who uh, wrote the book Turtles All the Way Down. He wrote the book which turned into movie, Fault in Our Stars, which is the most tear-wrecking movie I've ever seen, I think. <laughs> Because that, it takes what, a Turner and Hooch. No, it, it, t- it takes the <laughs> of humor and crying and humor and crying, and that hits you stronger and stronger every single time, which is uh, intense. It's okay, man. Yes, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, but no, he he, uh, he he also got a podcast where he talks about death a lot, by called Anthropocene Reviewed, which is fantastic. It's like. He's, he's, he's boiling down the human condition to a five-star scale and just giving reviews of everything. And the best thing is that he will have episodes about uh, sort of completely opposite topics like viral meningitis and Pac-Man. Yeah, amazing. <laughs> yeah, but, and, and I, I don't know. There's just something about him talking about death I find really calming. But the reason I'm actually spiffing it, which matches the theme of history, is that he got a YouTube channel called Crash Course. And he's done a really, really good uh, YouTube series, which is all about European history. And there's plenty of other like long-form deep dives into st- history and topics, everything from entrepreneurship to AI and things like that. And yeah, if you're curious about specifics in history, 
especially especially European history because that's the one I remember the most at the moment. Yeah. Check that out. Nice. Everything else by John Green. Crash Course on YouTube. John Green is the man. Cool. Good shout. And I'm sure he's the only John Green. Like if you look it up on Google, just search John Green. He's the only one that shows up. <laughs> yeah, there's lots of yellows and olives, but only one green. Gotcha. Is that him? No. Huh. <laughs> Perfect. Uh, One million subscribers. It's not him. Yeah. Post World uh, War recovery. Yeah, Russian right. Revolution, Civil War. That's got to be him. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's the thing. Yeah, yeah. Just not that guy. I think that might be. Uh, never mind. Yes, yes, yeah, yeah, you're next. Yeah, no. Yeah. I come up with these fucking initializations. <laughs> I know. It's just the fact that you guys were off having your own conversation. Sorry, Dad. Um. Yeah, just uh, for those of us that love history, I thought it would be apt to spiff the person who hates history the most and on a regular basis tries to destroy it, and that's our friend Honor over at Dies in Every Film. <laughs> um, any opportunity to take something with meaning and a story from the past that may have given us a link to a, a, a missing connection from something that once you know saved a life or um, fought in a war, he likes to just basically chop it up, boil it up, Painting it red uh, and ruin it. So um, just and then yell at the people and then yeah. swear at people. Um, but yeah, he's just um, he's been, he's been out of action for a bit. But it was good to see Honor come back and do a bit of a uh, a workshop move this week. It was nice to see. Um, but joking aside, um, I love seeing Honor kind of do things with old relics and give new purpose and new life to something that probably would have been chucked away anyway so i think he's known for destroying history but actually he's probably keeping it more relevant than ever so honor is spiffing mm -hmm. as always um and we haven't had a good bit of rico for a while so rico, rico! yeah good shout um yeah no that's really good uh i also enjoy honor uh <laughs> he is a lovely lovely chap um i was trying to think of a a sly way to insult him then and just i couldn't come up with anything um he's a shit yeah my my spiff is absolutely nothing to do with history uh well i suppose it's very very recent history so uh a little while ago as you all know oh, the group we did the um the fools of tools treasure trade um unfortunately mine got lost in the uh atlantic somewhere um <laughs> Uh, but it came with a um, uh, an SD card with a video on it that I purposefully didn't watch because I um, I thought it had some clips of the actual project and the present on it, uh, and I didn't want to watch it because I I you know I wanted the surprise for when the uh, parcel eventually turns up, um, and it because it's never turned up and because Jamie was here and we were talking about it. Um, I said, actually, you know what? Fuck it. I'm going to watch the video and see what it, you know, see, see if I can see some clips of it. Um, as it turns out, there was no footage whatsoever of the actual, uh, project. So I could have watched this video months ago and I'm really annoyed that I didn't, uh, because it had just like a, a little private mini shop tour and project update from Fern Webb, who is, uh, relatively active in the group um but the video was it's very hard to describe without 
being really gushy, but it was extremely heartwarming. It was wonderful to see the, I, I think I spoke about it before, but the letter that came with it was very, very heartfelt and got me right in the feels. And I think I, I would love, I mean, Fern's shop is amazing and I don't think she's going to be doing a, a public kind of workshop tour anytime soon. Um, but I think it's a real shame because there's some really cool stuff on there. It's an amazing space. Um, the project she was working on, she was making a, um, a paddleboard, like a stand-up paddleboard. Um, and getting to see the construction of that instantly made me want to make one myself, even though I am so unbalanced I would fall over even if it was on dry land. Um, but yeah, just absolutely lovely person who uh, did some very nice things and made made me feel all emotional and yeah that's it so fern web is spiffing uh brett yes oh is it my turn or are you just saying my name uh it's it's your turn you're the only one that hasn't gone ah right okay so my spiffy is historically accurate to this podcast? I don't know. Um, I was trying to think of something very witty to say right there. So the <laughs> channel name is Modern History TV. Um, it's got, you know, a couple hundred thousand subscribers. Uh, so not necessarily lacking for viewership, but uh, based on the conversation that we were having today, it's... It's really interesting to see um, like an ongoing series rather than, you know, maybe just a video or two on somebody's channel where they're discussing medieval arms or armory. Um, the gentleman who is the host on this channel uh, discusses everything from tools that were being used, horseback riding, you know, uh, weaponry, yes, but food how food was made or what kind of ingredients went into the food and this is all kind of within the medieval era or, or a few hundred years of uh european history and it's been really interesting to watch because every episode i'll call it goes into such detail on a, on a very specific aspect of culture back then um i the first one that was suggested to me was what did a knight's vessels eat? <laughs> so just like if you were a knight, what was your diet like? Yeah. And he talked about why or, you know, what ingredients with a, a specialist, you know, somebody who actually is a researcher in just the food and he discusses it with them. And then obviously they try the food and he's just like, Oh my God, this is horrible. Or, <laughs> you know, this is amazing. Um, but I like being able to look at something like that and then the next video being how swords were made or how armor was worn and not just like, this is what armor looks like. It's like, here's how it actually got put on somebody or why it was created the way that it was. So it's been an interesting channel to watch. Uh, just if anyone else has any interest in the medieval times and all the aspects of it, modern history TV. Nice. Um, yeah. It sounds very, very similar to uh, someone I think I actually spiffed on here near the very beginning, uh, a guy called Lindy Beige. Um, very similar sort of thing, except uh, Lindy Beige is also a little bit mental. Um, ah. 
Lindebush is fantastic. Yeah, uh, this is definitely like walking into a Renaissance fair and and having a, you know, like a tour guide. It's like, ah, yeah. oh, and over here we have the blacksmith. Yeah, uh, I can't remember who it was. Mental. Someone um, was commenting on the fact that American Renaissance fairs are basically uh, anything from before the Victorian era. That's that's when they class Renaissance fairs. As. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty rough. Yeah, it's the, no specific if you're going age. for historically accurate, it's yeah. Um, but yeah, no, that sounds very good. I might yeah, have to check that out. Um, cool. Is there any other business? AOB. Um, I'm not from my end. I got a fun thing. I didn't mention why I'm in England from the beginning. Why me. are you here? Yeah, why are you here? <laughs> <laughs> uh, because I got asked if I could make uh, a few things for Comic-Con in Liverpool next weekend. Nice. So I'm currently now finishing up. Wait, uh, are you going to be there for like until Comic-Con? Yeah. Oh, ow. You poor bugger. <laughs> no, I'm I'm leaving here on Thursday or Wednesday. Ah, okay. <laughs> <laughs> no, uh, but what I, uh, I got asked completely randomly if I could uh, make um, uh, the brazier and the tools for Bag End, where they're recreating the whole of Bag End for Elijah Wood to have his autograph signing in at Comic. No way. Yeah. So that's awesome. By the time this podcast comes out, I actually can post pictures of it all because <laughs> yeah. it's finished. Currently, it's a lot of different parts, and I'm not panicking quite yet. But it's <laughs> going through tomorrow. I might be panicking. Yeah. So oh, yeah, nice. uh, we'll see how that goes in the end. But um, serendipity in living form at the moment. Yeah, that's awesome, man. I uh, I look forward to seeing some pictures of that. Nice. Me too. Me too. Uh, anybody else have anything else? No? No, okay. not really. Maker cool. Summer School got a about uh, Maker Summer is it, yeah, Summer School that's happening in July and they just kind of started announcing signups and things like that and all of the teachers and educators and stuff which Jess and I are teaching an intro blacksmithing class so if you want to sign up the events are going to start kicking off here in the next few months between like Maker Central and all the other <laughs> shit that we all have to pay and keep track of. So if you want to go to summer school, go to Ohio in July. Cool. June? July. Uh, cool. In which case, uh, there's nothing else for me. So you can find us in all of the usual social media places. You can find me at Moonshow Metalworks. You can find Brett at Skull and Spade 13. You can find Al at Al's Hack Shack. Ah, shack, shack. Bop yeah. it, bop it, bop. And you can find Rasmus at uh, Rasmus Lowen, all one word, on okay. Instagram. What, what? Rasmus on everything, yeah. everywhere. There you go. Yeah. Um, yeah, and if you're not already following Rasmus, then go follow him because he's fun to be mean to. Um, what? <laughs> if you want to find us as a group, you can find us uh, on Instagram at FTPT Podcast. You can find the website at FTPPodcast.com. Uh, and we're on Facebook as well. Um, I think that's it. That's it, isn't it? Yeah? Yeah. Okay, we love you. Bye!
Bye. 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 Bye.